All right, good morning. Uh, good morning. Before we actually start here, can we have a round of applause for the music team? <laughs> Second round of applause for our interns. And lastly, third, just for CMs and for y'all to be here. Let's go. Uh, it has been a joy, not only, of course, to spend time with RUF Mizzou, as, as that's my heart, but also to spend time with y'all, uh, to get to know you guys a little bit more, to play games, to be silly, to learn about the different things that y'all do at your campuses. It has truly been a gift to me. Uh, so thank you for being here. Um, I, I love stuff like this. I hope you guys really enjoyed it, coming out of our shells a little bit, singing together, laughing together. Um, it's just such a joy. Um, so as you guys know, up to this point, um, Paul is just, he's preaching a gospel of radical grace. It is radical. Um, he meets us exactly where we're at. It's, it's, it's intoxicatingly radically beautiful. And, um, and so what Paul is saying, ultimately, is that God's grace is offering us forgiveness. It is offering us what our heart most deeply desires, as Brandon was telling us yesterday. And we want to make clear, and Paul is making clear, that our relationship with God is not based off of what we do. It's not based off of our works, but rather it is what Christ has already done. Something that in time and space and history and tangibility, right, things that, we, that, that they saw and they heard and they touched and they witnessed, that happened and Jesus uh, declared something and it was true. It was concrete. So it's not based off of works, it's based off of what Jesus has done. It's based off of pure grace. And so if that is true, if we are truly saved by grace alone, uh, through faith alone, and Christ alone, if that is true, what is keeping me from living any way that I want? Right? If I'm going to sin, and I can just come back to God and say, oh, please forgive me, and God's grace will continue to abound, well, what is keeping me from living any way that I want? Right? I mean, even at the end of chapter 5, coming up to my, our verses here, it says that the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Right? So where there is sin, grace will always extend past it. Always. So what is stopping us from just continuing to sin? Not only sin, but in increasing measure, so that God's grace will abound all the more. Right? The logic... Shouldn't I just continue to sin so that grace may abound? Of course, Paul answers this with the strongest possible Greek in, in the language. He says, megonoito, it's the optative. And the optative is the strongest way he can say, that is absolutely ridiculous to come to that conclusion whenever you hear about this grace. It is the opposite of what it should motivate you to do. He says, megonoito, by no means. But he doesn't stop there, right? He explains what he means and why that logic ultimately fails. And that's what brings us to our text this morning. So we're going to look at Paul's answer to this question, right? What shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means. So let me pray for us, um, and then we'll read the, the scripture passage together. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your holy word. I do pray that you would open up the eyes of our hearts uh, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be glorifying to you. And Lord, that your promise would ring true, that your word would never go out um, and return back empty. Lord, would you be at work? Would you keep us awake? 
to hear your, your lovely word about your grace this morning. We pray this all in the strong name of Christ. All right, this is the holy word of God. I'm going to read again chapter 6, verses 1 through, uh, 1 through 14. Here now. What shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were baptized therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. But for life he lives and he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive in God, in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make, it, make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present your members uh, yourselves as, uh, to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but you are under grace. Uh, the grass withers and the flowers fade. But this word will stand forever. Let's pray again. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, your word is sharper than a two-edged sword. Would you pierce our souls now in a way that's both encouraging and convicting uh, through both the truth and the love that you present in your son, Jesus. We pray this in the strong name of Christ. Amen. So one of the, one of the beautiful things about this, this kind of this whirlwind of a life that I live um, is I actually got called to come back to my alma mater. So Mizzou is my alma mater, and it's also where my story came to fruition. So I was actually in youth ministry for two and a half years, but my, my real heart is for, is for you, is for college students. Um, and the reason why is because I was the college student that everybody uh, signed, like, you know, checked off the list of like, he's not going to be anything. Um, so I was in the drugs and alcohol culture, um, and... Uh, whenever I got to Mizzou, uh, I, got, I got a DWI the first three months that I was there. Uh, I blew extremely high, manipulated the system. I convinced everybody else that I didn't have a problem. I was just doing what all other college students do, right? I, it's not me. I don't have a problem. I just got caught. Um, and so I uh, manipulated the system, went through the motions. And then uh, a year later, I received my second DWI. Uh, blue, a pretty, pretty similar as a 0.230 um, or 0.233. It's very high. It's over three times the legal limit. Um, I lost my license for over six years. I uh, went to jail for 10 days. Um, and actually that night while I was sitting in jail, now I've, I, I don't hear from the Lord audibly, but I did feel the spirit rumble up something in my heart that said, don't take shortcuts this time. I didn't know what that meant, uh, but what at least it meant was after I got out of jail that night, I went home and and uh, this was probably the, the darkest, uh, kind of the lowest point in my life uh, up to this point. 
And uh, I, I did have a little bit of church experience kind of growing up in a non-denominational Pentecostal leaning church. And so I kind of had some categories of this Jesus guy. Um, and then eight years later of wilderness years, I walked by myself to an EPC church, <laughs> walked into a Presbyterian church. Imagine that. And uh, it was a mega church and it was providentially right across the street from where I was living. And so, uh, and so I walked there and I felt like I was a man in the wilderness, right? And I was dying of thirst. And so whenever I got there, I couldn't even, I couldn't even sing the songs because if I opened my mouth, I would begin to weep. Um, and the Lord met me in a powerful way. And so, uh, and then they have these big screens because it's a mega, it's a mega church. And they said, men's recovery group, right? Contact Warren Mayer. And so I did, I signed up, uh, I, I went home and I went to care tab and I emailed him on Christmas Eve of 2013. Uh, and I said, Hey, I'm, my name's David Barnes. I really want to walk closer to the Lord again. Um, and I just received my second DWI and I'm, and I'm really going against the grain here. And, uh, so I met with him and I got into his recovery group. And as you would know it, I sparked alive. Um, I was on fire for Christ. I was on fire for the Lord. Um, and so I began to grow exponentially in grace and, um, and so I want you to imagine, let's, let's say six months into my sobriety, right? I want you to imagine how crazy it would have been to say, wow, God's grace is so good. I'm going to go back to drugs and alcohol because where my sin and, my, and, and where my sin uh, increased, his grace abounded all the more. So I'm going to go back to it so that I can receive it again. That makes absolutely no sense. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. You have been... You have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness and death to the kingdom of light. Why would you ever go back? It doesn't make sense. It's not who you are. You have been given a new identity. You have been given an identity that surpasses all other. Your sexual identity, your sexual orientation, right? The things that you struggle with in your sin life. You have been given an identity that is primary, that raises even above being American or being a Republican or a Democrat. It surpasses all of these things, and it's okay that the secondary ones will be a part of how you think about the world. That's fine, but this is your primary identity. It would be foolish, and it would be a contradiction, to, a contradiction of who I am to go back. So that's what Paul is saying. He's saying that God's radical free grace has opened my eyes to sin. He's opened our eyes to sin. And yesterday we heard about this word justification, and so the first thing that is is it declares us not guilty. This is court law language. And this is really important in the Old Testament. If you read the Old Testament, we, we need purity. We need purification to be in front of a holy God. This is just how the universe is made whenever the God is holy and righteous and just, but also loving and caring and kind and long-suffering. It's both and, not either or. And so imagine a man in his 20s is released from five years of prison because of drugs or, or grand larceny, you know, use your imagination. And when, when he's released, he's no longer condemned by the law. He's spent his time there. And so the guard hands him a new set of clothes and he says, you are free to go. So what is going to prevent this ex-con from falling back into his old self, to his old lifestyle? What would enable him to turn from that life and to clean it up? Right? Being released from prison is good news. It's good news, right? You're, you have a fresh slate, kind of like the bank analogy, you have a fresh slate, but it won't be enough. It won't be enough just to get out of jail and be given a, a fresh pair of clothes. It won't be enough to enable you to live in the newness of this life. Well, in a similar way, whenever you become a Christian, 
whenever you become a Christian, we are released from the prison of sin. Sin is not just some external behavior. If you read and you read well, it talks about sin as reigning. What reigns? What types of things reign? Things with power. Okay, it's not, sin is not just some external behavior. Sin is a reigning power in this world, at least what the Bible tells us. It's a reigning power. And if you become a Christian, if God opens up the eyes of your hearts and you turn away from this kingdom to this kingdom and you look up, right, you are released from the power that sin has over our lives. Why? Not because of your own strength to pull up your own bootstraps and say, I can do this. I'm strong. I work out. I do work out. And I, am, I like to think I'm kind of strong. But I need the Holy Spirit. We are not left alone, right? That's my point. But we're not left alone to fend for ourselves whenever we struggle with sin. And let me be clear, a quick caveat. As Christians and non-Christians, it doesn't matter where you're at on the spectrum, we will all continue to struggle with this. And that's why it's true. That's why we go back to, to, uh, to the first thing that we talked about is there is truth. Paul is giving us hope that not only have we been justified, not only have we been broken right from these chains of sin and slavery and death, but God gives believers the Holy Spirit to indwell, to enable, to teach, to reproof, to bring conviction, right? A lot of, str- a lot of Christians struggle with, with the reality of like, well, I'm still sinning so much and I feel conviction. I say, praise the Lord that you are even caring enough that you're saying like, I'm struggling with this whole Christian thing. You think you're behind the eight ball? That means to me you have spiritual vitality. That means to me the Lord is working on your heart. It's a process. It takes time. Be patient with yourself. The Holy Spirit is at work. But we're going to look at Paul's argument to see how he enables us. right? Because again, justification is being released. But that's not it. That's not all the Christian life. It's not just forgiveness and righteousness. It's a living out in this newness of an identity that has been given to you as a free gift as a son and daughter of the living king. And so Paul gives us two key things. God is our anchor and God as our engine. Firstly, God is our anchor. Uh, uh, This is like a subtitle. God is our anchor. We're looking into our union with Christ. We're looking into our union with Christ. We have to know that God is for us. Secondly, God is our engine. We have to live out of our union with Christ. It all starts there. It all starts with this reality that you are united to the living king by the power of the Holy Spirit and enabled to live out this new identity. God is in us. God is for us. God is in us. Firstly, God is our anchor. In order for God to be our true anchor, we must look into our union with Christ. Notice I didn't say look into yourself. (laughs) Look into our union with Christ. We must understand with our whole hearts that God is not against us. We have to truly understand that, the, that one of the key lies in the middle of the garden is that God is a liar, he is not to be trusted, and he is not truly good. God is for you. He is for us. He is for me. He is for the ones with questions and doubts and sin struggles. He is for the one who's, who's struggling with, an, with crippling anxiety and depression. He's for the ones who's struggling to please other people through performance and a resume and continue this rat race of life of trying to continue to perform to show that you really do deserve to be loved. God is for you. He is for us. But how does Paul help us understand this reality? First, we are baptized into Christ Jesus. Look at verse 3 up here. It says, Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus? 
uh, were baptized into his death. Again, if you read Romans 6, it is kind of confusing. Like, all honesty, it's a little confusing. But what, is, what exactly is Paul saying? In, to, in context, the Roman audience would have understood that whenever, whenever you become a Christian, the, the next thing you do is you, be, you get baptized. So there is some argumentation here. There's two camps. Baptize the Holy Spirit. Baptize in water. It's baptized with water. Okay? That's what the Romans would have understood because whenever you become a Christian, you get baptized. And whenever you get baptized, you do receive the power of the Holy Spirit. But baptism was a universal sign and seal to all those who believe in Christ. And no, baptism doesn't have any regeneration properties. Just because you get baptized doesn't mean your heart automatically changes. It's we, we do this as a sign to say, no, 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 the Spirit is at work in my head and my heart, changing my heart from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. And I want to get baptized as a sign and a seal to this reality that is in Christ. So we're not looking to the baptism, we're looking to the object that it points to which is Jesus. Therefore, the baptism, again, is an outward sign of an inward change, of something that you cannot explain with words. It's supernatural. It truly is beautiful, and it truly is a gift, and it truly is this intoxicating grace. Why do you think Paul is doing this question? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Why do you think he says that? He says it because it's so good. What is the significance of being baptized into Christ? Well, to be baptized into Christ, that language, by the way, if you read all of Paul's letters, you hear in Christ or with Christ or united with Christ, right? You, that preposition in and with is really beautiful and key language. And I want to set this up for you. Picture two circles as my hands, two circles and two R's at the top of the circle as representative. Whenever you are born into this world, you may call this unfair or unjust, but it's a reality of the Bible. Whenever you're born into this world, you are born under the representative of Adam. And Adam, because he is a sinner, he rebelled against the king of the universe. We are born under Adam. We are born in sin because he's our representative. Whenever it says that you have been baptized and you have been died with him, we transfer from this representative to this representative. The one who lived the life that we cannot. The one who died the death that we deserve. The one who is raised from that death to provide new life, that's our representative. And so whenever he says to be baptized into Christ, it's think about that bubble. You're in that bubble, right? Whenever you believe, whenever you repent, whenever you look to Jesus, you are now in Christ. You belong to him. You are participating in him. You are united to him. But it doesn't stop there. In verse 4, it says, We were buried, therefore, with him by a baptism into death. Meaning that whenever Jesus died on the cross, our old self, now you have the categories, our old self, Adam, also died with him. That means you and your sin has also died. You are dead. But this is a good sign. Because whenever there's death, there's life. That's what we see in our king. Whenever there is death, there is life. What does the Bible say? That the seed had to go into the heart of the world, right, for it to die so that it can produce fruit. It always has to be a death to life. It always has to be a resurrection. Why is this important? Verse 6, why is this important? We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we are no longer enslaved to that reign, to that power, to that representative. See, it's not just external behavior. There is a power going on here, and you've been transferred from one kingdom 
to another. So whenever we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we are united to him and his people, which means that just as he died on the cross, our old self has died and we are no longer enslaved to that sin. We actually have power. We have new life. And by God's intoxicating grace, sin and its power is no longer our master. We no longer have to bow down to what it says. Christ broke the chains of sin and death over our lives and he has offered us a new one. Which leads me to the second significance of being baptized into Christ. Not only have we been baptized into Christ's death and buried with him, but verse 4 and and 5 up here tells us that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might be raised. I hope you can see at least the logic is consistent. Can you see it? I hope I'm explaining it in a helpful way. The logic is super consistent. And like that's one of the things that makes me rely on the Bible as the real word of God. That, okay, okay, there may be some, some supernatural crazy stuff going on, but it makes perfect sense. <laughs> and it makes perfect sense with the reality that I see. Let me give you an image of skydiving. Okay, so how many, who, how many of you have been skydiving? All right, we, we've got one or two. Like, what you don't do whenever you go skydiving is you don't, like, you don't just decide to go skydiving one day and pay a pilot and then you just like, like jump out of the plane, right? That's not what happens. Well, that's not what happens in the Christian life either. Whenever you go skydiving, right, for the first time, you, you go through some classes, some education. Correct me if I'm wrong back there. I've never done this, so please forgive me. But, um, but yeah, you go through some classes. Hey, this is kind of what to do. But the key point, though, is they put you in tandem with an expert right? They put you in tandem with an expert and they're like, you ready? You know, or wherever they're attached to you. You know what I mean? Um, you ready? You know, uh, this is happening. Okay. You're flying out of a plane here in about five seconds. And so whenever he jumps, whenever he jumps, you jump. Whenever he falls, you fall. Whenever he pulls, pulls the parachute, zoom, he goes up, you go up, right? That's a picture of union with Christ. Whenever Jesus died, you died. Your old self died. Whenever Jesus rose, you rose to new life. You're in tandem with him. You're with the expert, if you will. The same is true for us, for those who are in Christ and baptized into him. You have died to that old self who was enslaved to sin and passion and desire, and you have died to that old self so that you can be resurrected into the person you were always created to be. God knows, right? One of the key questions, why did God let that happen? God knows that you've been created in his image. You've never lost that. You are still glorious. And yes, because sin affects all of who we are, there is ruin there. Think about it as a cancer that has affected every part of your body. But in Christ, he is starting to redeem each and every cell. Because he loves you so much, he wants you to be the true image bearer of his kingdom so that you can spread his glory. The story never changes, y'all. We were made in his image to cultivate the world, to bring his beauty and his love here. And he's, and he's still on that mission. But he had to do it through this way, through his son, bringing new life and a new, and a new representative. This was the only way for us to truly have true responsibility for our, for our actions as well as God's true sovereignty. If you are here and if you're wrestling with the claims of Christianity and what it means to be a Christian, I'm so glad that you're here. Do you resonate with the reality that sin is not just simply bad behavior, but a power that reigns? 
Does that, does that resonate in your life? It, does that resonate in your life whenever you look at your friends or betrayal or how you've been harmed or how you've harmed others? Does it make sense that you're like, holy smokes, I do things that I don't want to do and I do things, yeah, I do things I don't want to do and I don't do things that I really, really want to do because I know it's, it's the right thing. It feels like a power. There's more going on. It's not just bad behavior. It's not just because your parents failed to raise you, right? That it sometimes feels like sin hijacks us and begins to take control of our bodies and minds. It may feel like you are powerless in the moment of temptation or struggle. I know a key one is, is, is pornography, right? Maybe pornography addiction or, or sex or food or money or ambition. Something you've been wrestling with maybe for months now or for years. Maybe you're still in the dark about it. And maybe you've gotten some time of sobriety, and so you haven't come forward maybe to someone who's keeping you accountable in your life. You've gotten some sobriety, but as soon as you feel like you have it under control, you give in to the alluring power and the promise that it always has, this will make you feel better. This will relieve that pain. This will relieve that stress. If you do this, you won't feel that depression quite as strongly anymore. Have you experienced that? If you have, that's not a behavioral issue. That's a sin issue. That's a hard issue. And it's a hard issue that you cannot fix on your own. It's impossible. If you're a Christian, we certainly are not off the hook either. Though we believe these profound truths of God's intoxicating grace, we still struggle with addiction and performance and people-pleasing and chasing success and, and adding to this beautiful resume that we've worked so hard to create honor and respect and people to look fondly upon us. In fact, that's my point. Whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, sin is a power that we all struggle with in this life. But for all those who turn from that realm of sin that ultimately will lead to death and separation from God, we do have an opportunity to see a Savior and turn toward Him and for Him to give you new life and a new purpose. And in fact, it's the purpose that you've always been given. And it's, to, it's, it's almost like the imaginative refinding out who you're really meant to be. And the beautiful truth is that you're not alone. So we just discussed that God is for you. He is your anchor. And Paul reveals this reality by talking about our union with Christ. And yes, my subject was sanctification, but you can't talk about sanctification without our union. Because if you do, it's going to become moralism. I'm going to be preaching to you to a gospel of do better, try harder, you know, you're not good enough. And then you're going to be really confused. So if I don't start with union with Christ, you're going to be, I'm not, I'm, I'm ripping the tools to be able to do this because you cannot do it on your own. Christianity is not about trying harder and doing better. It's a deepening into the heart of God and leaning into the reality that by God's spirit living inside of you, you are a son, you are beloved, that you have full acceptance and righteousness, and that changes you. Are you to continue in sin so that, so that grace may abound? By no means. Do you not know who you are? Do you not know your new identity? God is with you. But not only that, God is in us. God is our engine, number two. God is our engine, which leads, which leads me to, uh, so God is our engine, Subpoint. now live out of it. Because in the Christian life, there is the gospel reality and there is the ethical demand. I've even heard from some people say, it feels like there's a lot of things to do in the Christian life. You're right, but order matters. You're just living out of your new identity now. It's different whenever you see it in the correct order. 
So live out of your union with Christ. In the book Deeper, it's kind of a same series as, as uh, the really popular book by Dane Ortland uh, that came out. And of course, I'm blanking on it. What is it? Do you? Yep. Yeah, so I was, of course, blanking on like the most popular book of 2020. Um, and so he describes four ways that Christians ultimately uh, often think of growth. The first three we may pick up just kind of in and out of churches or, or maybe our friend groups or something like that. Um, and I think this will be helpful. Um, so there, I'm going to say them and then I'm going to define them. So one, God then me. Two, God not me. Three, God plus me. Four, God in me. Okay, those are the kind of the ways that we think about Christian growth. So follow with me here, because I think some of this is going to ring true for you. Number one, God, then me. This believes that God does everything to save me. He opens my eyes. He, he gives me a new heart. He grants me resurrection life. He gives me a blank slate. I'm forgiven. But then it is ultimately up to me to get busy, to start serving him, showing how grateful I am to receive his grace and mercy and begin to perform. Faith alone gets me in, but effort moves me along. Have you ever experienced this? This is very common in the Christian life. Second, God not me. This is the complete opposite. It believes that God saves me, and then the Christian life is a matter of God and only God bringing about growth in the Christian life. Let, let, let go and let God, brother. He's at work in you. It's true to it, but it fails because that's not the biblical one. First is too optimistic in the believer's life of their capability and human responsibility. Second is too pessimistic about what believers can actually do. Third, God plus me. Okay, this is getting closer a little bit. Believers, uh, uh, this believes that Christian growth is a collaborative effort. So think of a circle and then in the middle is a squiggly line, God and, and plus me. It's a collaborative effort. God does some and I do some. This gets a little bit closer, but it's not what the Bible teaches. Number four, this is what the Bible teaches. God in me. This believes that God does everything to save me, and then by the power of his Holy Spirit, he unites me spiritually to his son, Jesus Christ. And the result of that is our growth and holiness. So you know how it's like the squiggly line? This is God and me. Us. It's, it's both. Overlaid. We are not merely passive in it. This is a quote. We're not merely passive in it, nor yet does God do some and we do the rest, but rather God does all and we do all. It's both and. Don't ever solve the tension the Bible doesn't solve. The Bible does not solve the tension between human responsibility and divine sovereignty. Allow those things to coexist because the Bible does. So whenever Paul declares in verse 11, after telling us that God is for us, he concludes this. So you also must consider yourselves, to consider yourselves dead to sin and alive in Christ. Watch this. In six chapters of Romans, okay, Christians will know this may not, Christians may not, Romans is one of the most theologically sound and gospel-driven books in the New Testament. In six chapters, this is the second imperative. An imperative is a command. And what is it? To consider the second command. He's been preaching the socks off of the gospel. He's been preaching the gospel of the, uh, the intoxicating grace of God, where if you believe and turn to him, he's going to give you new life, forgiveness, righteousness. Yes! And then, and, then, and then his second imperative is to consider. Why is his second imperative to consider? He wants you to ponder these things. The Bible wants you to be a thinker. 
have any questions? No, the Bible wants you to ponder, to reflect, to think, to chew, to mull over, to examine, to study, to ask questions, to go to small group, right? To, to discuss these things. Little plugs, selfish plugs, that shameless plug. Okay, so imagine two fields. Let me give you an image. Imagine two fields out in the country, super high fences. Let's add a twist to it with like barbed wire and stuff. Right, we've been, we begin life in this field ruled by sin and Satan and darkness with no chance of getting over this fence. But God, in his grace and divine will and his pleasure in his people, declares not guilty in Christ. And he takes us out of this field and he places us into an, a one that's right next to it, but it's ruled by Christ and his righteousness. Now watch. Now we've experienced a positional change. We have a new life. It's a positional change, but we can still hear Satan over there calling us from across the fence. And sometimes we obey his voice out of habit. Sometimes we obey his voice out of habit, even though it's not who we are anymore. God knows this, and there's grace there. And sometimes we hear and we give into the siren call of remaining of the remaining sin in ourselves. Let me talk about some application. For some of us, we need to heed Paul's command to ponder, to think, to wrestle, to examine the scriptures. Pray, pray and study scriptures by yourselves. Read the word of God for yourself. This will, you know why we say this will stand? Because it's true. This will stand. There's no question too hard for God to wrestle with you with. May I apologize on behalf of everyone spiritual in any way. If you've ever been maybe like shunned or, or, or like looked down upon for a good question in the Christian life, I'm truly sorry. God doesn't need people defending him. He will defend himself and his word will always come out, okay? And if you're wrestling with a reality of sin and God's sovereignty, it's okay. God loves you. He's in process with you. And that's what he's trying to communicate to you through his word. Pray study. Even if you don't even believe it yet, pray. Pray that you would believe it. Study scripture for yourself individually. Think about these things, ponder them, but don't end there. Get with other people. Study the scriptures with others. Maybe even for the first time, go deeper. It's not about doing more, trying harder. It's about going deeper into who God is, going deeper into who God is so you know who you are. To read a book, read a book that helps you understand God's word better or what is said in the Bible. Some people are really good at simplifying what's in the Bible. So read a book that, that simplifies some of these things. It is hard, guys. Let's just all name that. The Bible is weird. Wonky stuff in there, you know? But it's, it's true. It's weird, but it's true. To live in the light and accountability of other brothers and sisters who have permission to speak in your life. Do you have people that can call you out? Seriously. Do you have people that can say, hey man, the way that you're living is not in line with what you say and who you are now. Do you have people that have the permission to do that in your life? It's hard and it's vulnerable. But I want you to press in and ask people to hold you accountable because then that's a step like, whoa, my heart, stuff that comes out of my heart is being transformed and I, and I love that, but I need accountability in that. For others of us, we need to be reminded that God is in you and he is for you, which means we are called to actively resist, but you are not on your own. In verse 12, it says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. How are you doing? 
When you're tempted to slander, do you resist or do you give in? What power is reigning over you? The power of acceptance or the power of Christ? The power of love. Do you defend and go against the grain or cower behind people-pleasing and avoiding conflict? When you are tempted to lie, do you actively ask the Spirit for courage to speak truth? Or do you give in to it to make yourself look better? Do you inflate that story so that you're the hero? When you're tempted to justify your own sin or behavior, do, you res- do we resist our own failure and genuinely seek forgiveness and reconciliation? Or do we grow in complacency and apathy towards God and everybody else? Right? Do we get angry at God because of the sin struggles in our own lives and, and, the, and the fruit that it's producing? So we get angry at God and we blame God because it's got to be his fault that my life is going really terribly. And so then we want to point our fingers because ultimately in the, in the depths of our heart, we want to justify ourselves. We want to show that we are right. When you are tempted to take a shortcut in life, do you resist it? Or do we give in because we really don't trust God and our lives to work? We don't trust that he's, we don't trust that he's really going to give us good things. And so if I have any say and if I can manipulate the outcome, I will. That's exactly what Adam and Eve did. They don't trust him, and they took something that was pleasing to them, and they defined good and evil, and they said, this is good. Do you do that? Do you say, no, God, this is good. I'll take, I'll take it now. Thank you. <laughs> um, like, whether you are a Christian or a non-Christian, again, wherever you are on the spectrum, we all struggle with these realities. This isn't like, nope, that's just them. It's everyone. That's what I love about the Bible. It's speaking to real people with real hearts, with real families, in real lives, with real struggles. And we're never alone in it. We all struggle with these realities in our lives, but the one who turns away from our sin and pursues God in Christ receive assurance that God is for you and that he is in you. And let me end with this, with this illustration. The Christian life is a lot like learning how to ride a bicycle. Right? The bicycle, the front tire is always grace because grace always leads. The back tire is our call to live out that new life, that, that new life in Christ. And have you ever learned how to ride a bike or saw somebody, right? What happens usually? They go out, they got the helmet, they got the pads, they got the bicycle, you know. Um, and dad, and what's dad usually doing, right? He's, he's, usually, he's usually holding him on the back. And the son on the first day is like, dad, you got me? You got me? He's like, I got you, son. I got you. I got you, son. I got you. Keep pedaling. Keep pedaling, right? And so grace, our, work, you know, our, our, our call to live. And day after day, and maybe, maybe you're, you're, you know, you're a slow learner like me, the day three comes along, and what, what ends up happening is the looking back comes less. But you know what never comes less is, God, is, is, is your dad never lets go. But then if he does let go, and this for the sake of the illustration, and then you crash and burn, he picks you back up. And you guys get back on and he continues. I want you to hear that God is always holding on to you. That God is never going to let go. That you are God's beloved son. That he sent his son to die for. Or daughter. That he sent his son to die for. And he is holding the back of your bicycle saying, I got you. I got you. Keep pedaling. I got you. This is the gospel of grace. This is the gospel of the intoxicating reality that we are saved by grace through faith. It is not of your own doing. It is a gift. Let's pray.
Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your son, Jesus. Uh, thank you for this good news and this gospel that not only justifies us, it not only declares us not guilty and gives us your righteousness, but it gives us also a new life to work out this new salvation, this, this freedom, this gift, this, this unbonding, if you will, of the chains of sin in our lives to live a life that we are truly always meant to live. Lord, I pray that this truth would delve deeply into the hearts of, of Christians and non-Christians in this room, that we would be transformed by this reality and know that you delight in us and that you are our Heavenly Father pouring out your love to your Son in eternity and you share that love with us through your gospel. Lord, thank you so much for that. We pray for these students as they go out and live this out um, uh, in grace and in process. Lord, we love you and we pray this all in the strong name of your Holy Son and all of God's people said together. Amen. Stand together and sing. What? what? Yeah, I'm going to do it after. Doxology. Yeah. Yeah.